Welcome back to week five of our study through the book of Mark. For those of you who may not know me, my name is Kate Callahan. I've been married to my husband, Sean, for almost five years. We have two, soon to be three children. Isla is two and a half. She's obsessed with dinosaurs and is an aspiring paleontologist. And Ezra just turned one. And he's the reason why I now understand why the world is full of mama's boys. Baby number three will be joining us sometime in the spring. So we are now in the final weeks of our study. And my viewpoint on the book of Mark has changed drastically. I did not have an appreciation for Mark when I first started studying. I'm a words person, so I love the book of Matthew with the Christmas story and the poetic language of John. But Mark felt like this action-packed version of the gospel written for dudes without many quote-worthy verses. However, the more time I've spent in the book of Mark, the more I've grown to love it. Mark wastes no time getting to the point of the story, the cross. And without that, the entire Bible and all of its beautiful words are meaningless. The big question we've been asking throughout our study is who is Jesus and what is he doing? So far, we've learned that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, and he's bringing the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God is not what the people expected. As we move through Mark 11 and 12, we'll see deception and unmet expectations littered throughout as we compare and contrast the people of Jerusalem to a cursed fig tree. As we open up, we have a turning point in the text. We see Jesus finally entering Jerusalem the holy city of God. Jesus has made it clear up to this point who he is. He is the king, and just as would be expected, the king is finally entering the city. However, our triumphant hero doesn't enter on a white stallion like the kings in storybooks. We find him riding in Jerusalem on a donkey. How unexpected and anticlimactic. The savior and the king of the entire universe rides into Jerusalem on a servant animal, often associated with the lower class. And let's not forget it's not so Christian nickname. Can you imagine being in the crowd and realizing this is the man you're cheering for? I imagine there may have been some puzzled faces and hushed whispers asking one another, is he really the king we've been waiting for? We looked back to Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 11, and read that Jerusalem's king would come to them righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9. 
This may not have been the entrance the people expected or wanted from their king, but it's the entrance they need. If Jesus had entered any other way, he would not be fulfilling his prophecy, and we'd have a different ending to our story. Fortunately for the people, Jesus would continue to shatter their expectations. They still had no idea that victory would come by their king experiencing pain rather than inflicting it. And while Jesus is continually not what the people are expecting, this week's big idea is that God's chosen people are not living up to the expectations of the kingdom. We will talk about how the people of Jerusalem are not living like citizens of heaven and discuss the solution for the problem. Have you ever been anticipating something that appears or sounds like it's going to be amazing only to find out you've been deceived? When I was around six years old, my aunt and my cousins were visiting at our house. My aunt gathered up all my cousins and explained that it was time for them to leave because they were going to Wally World. Well, I had never heard of Wally World. And to my six-year-old brain, it sounded like a magical amusement park. It had to be right up in the rankings with Disney World or Orlando Studios. Or at the very least, Chuck E. Cheese. I begged my mom and aunt to let me tag along, and to my greatest joy, they said yes. We loaded up in my aunt's minivan, and I settled in, prepared for a long car ride. But 20 minutes later, to my surprise and my great disappointment, we pulled up to Walmart. We were not going to a magical land of adrenaline rushes and make-believe. I was tagging along on my aunt's weekly errands. I had been deceived by the enchanting name. The theme of deception will be prevalent as we enter today's text. Mark begins chapter 11 with a literary technique called a Markin sandwich, where he sandwiches one narrative event in between two parts of another. We saw this technique last week in the story of Jairus's daughter and the bleeding woman. This week, Mark uses it to tell the story of a fig tree and the events that occurred with Jesus in the temple. The second morning of what we would call Holy Week, or the week leading up to the crucifixion, Jesus and his disciples travel from Bethany back into the city of Jerusalem. Although he was God in the flesh, Jesus was still also fully man. And because of that, he got hungry. He sees a fig tree in leaf and approaches it to pick some fruit. But as he gets closer to the fig tree, he realizes it doesn't actually contain any figs. Jesus becomes angry and curses the fig tree, stating, may no one ever eat from you again. Prior to this moment, we've seen Jesus healing 
restoring, and showing mercy. This reaction of anger and destroying may have been a little shocking to us. Did anyone else think to themselves, Whoa, Jesus, calm down. It's not even the season for figs. You're just hangry. Someone get this guy a Snickers bar. Well, this is what we learned about the growth cycle of fig trees. Fig trees produce their fruit before the leaves open. So when Jesus saw the fig tree in the distance full of leaves, he fully expected there to be an abundance of fruit. However, the leaves created a blanket of deception to the outside world, and the tree was fruitless. Mark then takes a break from the story of the fig tree. However, we see a familiar image as Jesus enters the temple the next morning. This is the meat and cheese of the Mark and Sandwich, if you will. Just as the entrance of the king was not what the people expected, the people of God were not living up to the expectations of the kingdom. The expectations outlined in Exodus was for the people of God to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. Jerusalem was supposed to be the Mecca of Israel, a spiritually vibrant city that centered its life around the temple. From the outside, looking in, it appears to be just that, with the cheering crowds, the celebration, and the hustle and bustle around the temple. However, when the king enters the temple, he is struck by a lack of spiritual fruitfulness. Last week, we learned that Jewish culture had a strong emphasis on boundaries, classifications, and their standards for who was allowed within certain rings of the temple. As Jesus arrives to the outer ring of the temple, the area reserved for the impoverished and the non-Jewish people, he discovers the people have turned the temple, God's dwelling place, into a common marketplace, selling pigeons and ultimately withholding forgiveness from the least of these. The people couldn't afford to pay for the pigeons being sold and therefore couldn't make sacrifices to achieve atonement. Do you see the resemblance to the fig tree? Just like the tree full of leaves that appeared to be fruitful from a distance, Jerusalem was spiritually barren. The nations surrounding Jerusalem should have been looking at the city in awe of how God's people lived their lives, living up to the calling of a holy nation and priesthood. But the crowds of people cheering in the hustle and bustle around the temple served merely as leaves of deception to the people from a distance. So what does Jesus do? He angrily flips the merchant's tables and drives them out of the temple. He immediately begins teaching the people, saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? 
but you have made it a den of robbers. The crowd was astonished at the authoritative teachings of Jesus. Unlike the religious leaders, Jesus was teaching that the temple and nearness to God should be accessible to everyone, regardless of who they were, where they were from, or their social status. The chief priests and scribes, fearful of losing their power, their social status, their reputations, and their religion, sought to destroy Jesus. But this was part of Jesus's plan all along. Have you noticed the change in Jesus's behavior? He has remained calm and gracious with the Pharisees up to this point, but now he's reacting with anger and zeal. It seems so unlike him. But Jesus knew he had to be martyred to save the people. So we had to ensure this would happen. As we approach the end of Mark and get closer to the crucifixion, Jesus has to provoke the religious leaders more and more to make sure that his journey ended at the cross. We then transition back to the final slice in our Mark and sandwich. Jesus and his disciples walk past the fig tree the next morning, and the disciples are stunned at what they see. The fig tree, cursed by Jesus, was withered away to its roots. Jesus had stripped away the tree's outer beauty, and now it stood ugly and exposed. Just like the fig tree, Israel was cursed. Jerusalem's fate was foreshadowed by the image of withered branches and fallen dead leaves. The curse on the fig tree served as a warning to the disciples, and it should serve as a warning to us today. It is one thing to lack fruit out of season. It's another to lack fruit while pretending you haven't. We should take a moment to reflect on our own lives. Are we withered to our roots? Are we experiencing fruitlessness or lack of intimacy with God? Have we even managed to deceive ourselves? A few years ago, my good friend Alexa caught the bouquet at a wedding. A couple weeks later, I went to her apartment to hang out and saw the flowers on her kitchen table. I commented on how good they still looked after this much time, and she gushed about how she had been changing the water every day and taking care of these flowers and was so impressed with how long she had kept them alive and beautiful. I leaned in to smell them, and when I got closer, I realized those flowers were so pretty and lively because they weren't real flowers. Alexa had convinced herself that this bouquet was alive and well because of her care. But guys, she was watering fake flowers. Ladies, 
Are we deceiving ourselves by watering fake flowers? It's important to take some time to reflect on our own fruit. How could we be deceiving others? Are you a working woman trying to keep multiple hats spinning in the air and climb the ladder at work while managing a household, loving your husband, and raising a family? Do you give off the appearance that you have it all together when inside you're withering away? Are we parenting our children and tending to their roots to help them grow up with the foundation of the gospel and live like Jesus? Or do we merely care that they make us look good when we're out in public? Deceiving the world can be easy. And we almost always have some level of awareness of what we're doing. What can be scarier to reflect on and question is if we could be deceiving ourselves. What are our true motivations for volunteering at church? Is it to glorify God or to look like a good Christian woman? Why are we leading connection groups? Is it because we want to help people grow spiritually and share the gospel? Or do we like having a little bit of power and authority? Are we praying that God would align our hearts with his will or that he'd give us what we want? 2020 has been a rough year. I know for me, I struggled in the first half of the year to see any fruit in my own life. I went from a spiritual high teaching for the first time during the suffering story or study and hearing how it impacted different women to feeling like I was being driven into a spiritual wilderness where I struggled to delight in God's word and even had a season of doubting God's existence. Ladies, I want to emphasize that it's okay if you feel like a fig tree out of season. You're here today studying God's word. And when we drench ourselves in the word, we are fighting back against that. And spring is coming. So now that we all feel like a cursed fig tree, what do we do? Just like the fig tree and the people of Israel, our sins make us deserving of death. But Jesus tells us very simply, have faith in God. He follows this by saying, truly, I say to you, which is his way of saying, listen up. And if you're taking notes, write this down. The Greek loosely translates to a form of amen. So Jesus is speaking with the type of authority that he can amen something before he even says it. He says, truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes in that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you have asked for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. 
Jesus is merely asking us to believe in who he is and trust that he can do anything. We've already seen him cast out demons, heal the sick, restore a blind man's sight, and raise a little girl from the dead. Jesus wants us to boldly come to him in prayer and ask for something that seems impossible because we have the confidence that nothing is impossible for God. It really shouldn't be hard, but our skeptical minds make it so easy for us to doubt the power of God. Now, you might be saying to yourself, I have faith in Jesus, and I have prayed on my knees for healing, for a job, for restoration to my marriage, and God has not answered my prayer. I've been there too. This is why, although it seems so simple to have faith, it's actually hard. Although at first glance, the text seems to tell us that we will get everything we pray for, we've all likely had experiences where this is not the case. If we could ask God for anything we wanted, knowing he would obey our every request or command, we would be God. We've seen what happened when Adam and Eve tried to be like God in the Garden of Eden. It resulted in the fall of man. Jesus is simply telling us that we should ask for big things because we believe that he can do them. The things that we ask for may not align with God's will. And this is one of the biggest trials in our faith. Even Jesus himself did not have every prayer answered the way he wanted. He asks God to spare him from the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. And God did not grant him that desire because it was not in God's will. Our answered prayers may be painful and confusing for us, but they're not for God. God's immense grace in placing our complete faith in who Jesus is, what he has done, and what he will come back to do is ultimately what saves us. The same grace and faith is what transforms our souls as we become more like Jesus and unlike the cursed fig tree, begin to bear fruit. Faithfulness is the beginning of fruitfulness. To bear fruit simply means to become more like Christ in character and reflect the fruits of the Spirit of peace, joy, love, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control outlined for us in Galatians. It would have been an expectation during this time for a king to construct a temple of his own. But Jesus doesn't do this. Instead, he restores the temple by his death. But he does this in an unexpected way. By faith, he puts the Holy Spirit inside of us as we become temples. We become holy places the breeding grounds for future fruit.
So what does spiritual fruitfulness look like played out? Well, our first thought might be to look at the religious leaders, those that should be setting an example for the rest of the people. Throughout the Old Testament, we saw the divine appointing of godly men like Abraham, Moses, Jacob, and David. And yet, what we see in Mark is the Pharisees, scribes, and the Sadducees failing to meet point number one of putting their faith in Jesus, which would result in producing fruit when they attempt to question Jesus and trap him in his talk. Jesus even warns the people to beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogue and places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. The religious leaders, yet again, have failed to live up to the expectations of the kingdom. They are showy and want to be seen and admired by others. They pray long wordy prayers because it makes them sound important and holy. They're more concerned with their religious practices and that they are the perfect example of people who appear fruitful, but were actually spiritually barren. They had even fooled themselves. Jesus then points to the last person we would expect to be used as an example of fruit being produced from faith. A poor, widowed woman. Jesus and his disciples watch as the woman places two copper coins in the offering plate. A meager gift. However, Jesus draws attention to it with another listen-up statement. Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all who are contributing in the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all she had, all she had to live on. This poor woman is the epitome of fruitfulness as she puts her faith in God, trusting him to provide for her and humbly gives her first, her best, and her only. Jesus is highlighting the widow's faith. Ladies, there are no other prerequisites for producing fruit. This is still all new to me as I've only been walking with Christ for a few years. But you don't need to be walking with God for a lifetime to produce fruit. You don't need wealth or more time or a husband that leads you well. The widow had no social status or worldly possessions, but she did have faith. From the moment Jesus and his disciples entered Jerusalem, we've seen expectations being shattered. God's chosen people generally haven't lived up to the expectations of the kingdom. And this brings us to the one and only solution to our problem, the cross. By flipping over the tables in the temple, 
Jesus provides that solution. He is foreshadowing how he will be the ultimate sacrifice for us all. He is overturning the obstacles preventing atonement and hints that the sacrificial system would soon be turned over. His body on the cross and his blood poured out would be the final sacrifice for us all. Although Israel was cursed and deserved to wither like the fig tree, Jesus, in all his mercy, took the cross upon him, took the curse upon himself when he hung on the cross. Mark 11 through 12 takes us through the first three days of Holy Week, the week leading up to the crucifixion. Let's take a moment to look back and review. Looking back, we're able to start connecting dots that point towards the cross. On day one, we watched as the king of the universe rides into Jerusalem on a servant animal. Why the nod to serving? Day two, we see Jesus' humanity displayed in hunger, and we see a hint that the sacrificial system is about to get turned upside down. Why do we care that Jesus is a man? Day three shows Jesus' authority being challenged, and we see the most unexpected person behaving as expected. In a few more days, we will see Jesus serve as the ultimate sacrifice as he lays his authority down on the cross and takes on the wrath man deserved so we could all become citizens of heaven. Let's pray. Jesus, help us reflect this way, this week on ways that we may be deceiving ourselves. We believe, but help our unbelief since faithfulness is the beginning of fruitfulness. Allow your Holy Spirit to sanctify us as we strive to be like citizens, to behave like citizens of heaven. In your name we pray, amen.